Welcome in to another episode of Patrick Jones Baseball, where we find the best tools to build the best players. On this episode, we have Anthony Iaposi. Anthony is currently the Chicago Cubs big league hitting coach. And in this episode, he goes over his own career as a coach so far and, and talks about, you know, what it was like early on in his, in his first year and you know how to really make an impact with players at the professional level. Talks about being a coordinator and, and traveling and seeing players all over at different various levels, all the way down to the Dominican Republic, what training is like down in the Dominican Republic, and then also just working with hitters even at the major league level and, you know, what he looks for, what he watches for. It's fascinating information. I think it's great and it's applicable to coaches at, at every single level. And I'm, I'm a big fan of, of Anthony's, been, been following him and, and listened to him on other podcasts in the past. So this is great content. And I think if, if you're someone who just enjoys coaching in general, you'll, you'll get a lot out of this episode. If you're interested in having Anthony speak to your team uh, via Zoom or whatever it may be, make sure to send him a direct message on Twitter at Anthony Iaposi is his Twitter handle. So again, if you're coaches out there, maybe you want him to speak to a group of coaches or you're a team, travel team, high school, college, whatever it may be, and you want him to speak to your team, send him a direct message on Twitter, Anthony, at Anthony Iaposi. So at Anthony Iaposi on Twitter. Today's sponsor is Marv Bands, and these are this product is awesome. A, it's extremely affordable, but B, I, I've been using this product for about a year, and I love it that you can use it for movement prep for hitters. So before they actually get in the cage, if they're working on something specific, whether it be they're flying open early on their front side or you're really working on you know that back, back arm, rear arm driving inward, love using it for that. Also can use it for... Um, arm care too and if you go to dick's sporting goods on black friday you'll receive 25 percent off so make sure to go to dick's this friday black friday it's 25 percent off you can also get them at dick's anytime now they're, they're full go at dick's or you can get them on the website too so big fan of the product of marv training um, you can go to marvtraining.com or as I said, go into Dick's anywhere in the country, and they'll they'll have them uh, there in stock. So, back to uh, the episode. Here is Anthony Iaposi. All right, we're now live with Anthony Iaposi. Anthony, thanks for coming on today, man. Thanks for having me, Patrick. So I'm I gotta ask, to... you're you're in New York right now you're a new yorker i mean are do you is new york style pizza your favorite i love any type of pizza besides the big time chain ones you know i love pizza by the slice obviously in new york it's something that i can eat every day uh, but also when you go to chicago when we're working with the cubs and you you know you have the deep dish that's really good too a little bit heavier um not can eat as many slices but i'll eat it the next day i won't even heat up any type of pizza i just eat it straight up cold Oh, whoa, so I love, cold? Yeah. yeah, I eat cold. I eat oh, slice man. cold, whatever's on it, or, you know, deep dish cold. But even even the even the thin crust in Chicago, they cut it into little little tiny pieces. It's it's great. So all pizza's pretty good as long as it's – mostly the neighborhood places are, are pretty good. Everybody's always asking, where can I find, you know, a good pizza in New York, man? If you just walk around, whether you're in Brooklyn, Queens, Bronx, or even driving around in Long Island, 
or even if you're in Manhattan, you're going to walk into pizza places. It's most, the majority of them, 95% of them are pretty good. So you've been with the Cubs now for a few years, and, and this is going off of the, the pizza a little bit. What's your favorite spot around Wrigley Field? I, I went to Wrigley Field my first time a year and a half ago, maybe. Loved it. Incredible. I, did, I never knew yeah. it was like in this neighborhood or anything. A lot of great spots around there. Do you have a, a, a certain spot? Yeah. Well, th this past year, we weren't allowed to go anywhere. But prior to that year, uh, Joe Madden actually had a restaurant open called Madden's Post. And he's from the Northeast. Uh, it was So it was half Polish, half Italian food. So the pizza on it was was delicious. You had pizza by the slice, little mini pieces, um, which was really good. And then you always walk by some some establishments right around Wrigley that you go into. Uh, Murphy's Pub on the corner. You can always just just hang out and and uh, when it's not too crowded, they push you off to the side if you, if you're you're with a group. So uh, hopefully going into next year, they can they can start opening up those places, which they are open now. But you know, more importantly, that we're able to go as a coaching staff. So, because you just go right this past year, you went right from the field to the apartment, walking back and forth. Gotcha. Gotcha. What, uh, you know, I, we were talking yesterday and, and, you know, you're a big league hitting coach. You've been a hitting coordinator. You've been, you pretty much done it all. But I remember you said like, you never wanted to really be a hitting coach. So, I mean, how, how does that, how does, how does that happen? Cause it seems like you got to be hitting coach from the time you're the way it, it seems now from the time you're like 25 to, uh, you know, on, but, yeah, you said you never even really wanted to be a hitting coach, but here, here you are, a successful hitting coach. I think when you're playing through the minor leagues and, and for myself playing 11 years in the minor leagues, a lot of ups and downs, you know, got to the 40-man roster and then, you know, got to my first stint in AAA and got off to the worst start of my career, you know, and it wasn't anything I changed in my swing or my approach of the play. What happened was I put a lot of, a lot of pressure on me to try and get to that next spot and then there was worried about people behind me and then my, you know, my, my performance really suffered. I couldn't get out of my own way. And this was the first time I, I really dealt with that on an extreme level where you're, you're so close to, to making your dream. Um, and then you get injured, then you come back, and then you can't find this. And now you're, you're asking everybody about your swing when it's not your swing. It's, it's not necessarily your attitude, but it's how you think about yourself now, right? So you lose a little bit of confidence and you're trying to figure out that. So going through that whole process was the main reason why I got into coaching. It wasn't because I love or enjoy hitting or enjoy defense or base running. I enjoy all aspects of the game, but I wanted to get in it to help guys, especially in the minor leagues to get through that long season. Like we were talking about that first full year. Um, my first full season of coaching was in Greensboro and getting those guys through, through, you know, 600 plate appearances and over 2000 pitches and how to get in them focused and what's important in their life uh, doing the buses, day games, night games, traveling 12 hours and have to play, you know, teaching them how to get through those things so that when they get to the big leagues, at least they've established some type of, uh, you know, physical routine, but also a mental routine of, of dealing with failure over and over the minor leagues and then get into the big leagues. The game is not different. What's different is the players, right? Everybody's a little bit better. So you, you get in any way you can, as you know, whether it's a hitting coach or a pitching coach or whatever it can be. So I got in as a hitting coach and then kind of moved up and then got an interview with Toronto to be their hitting coordinator and got that job after I left the Marlins and then went to the Cubs as their head co hitting coordinator for three years and then went to Texas for three years as their, as their major league hitting coach, and now I'm back with Chicago. So it's kind of just where I was at that time. Um, I don't know where it's going to be. You know, you're still always trying to figure out – you still want to learn more about the game. I do miss be, from being a hitting coach 
being a part of the whole game, like a bench coach or a manager, being involved with the pitching, being involved with the base running, um, and just being involved in the game more and not just, you know, the hitting part and the pitching and dealing with guys in the cage all the time. Going back to what you you were talking about, you know, helping guys their first full season in the minor leagues, just from really just an emotional standpoint, physical standpoint, how to get them ready. How how do you go about that? I think you just get a feel for each guy, getting to know their where they're from, their backgrounds, because you're dealing, you're not even dealing with people in the United States. You're dealing with people from all over the world. You know, so even when I was in Texas in the big leagues, we were the most diverse team in the major leagues and you're still learning how to navigate guys from different parts of the world and not just South America. We're talking, you know, with Shinjuju and, and Korea as well. Um, so you get to know the player, where they're from, what type of background, have they traveled much, all these types of things. Have they failed much? Have they been a part of winning? All these things affect their day to day. Do they miss home? Have they been away from home? Did, where, what college did they go to? Were they away from college? Did they stay at home? Um, because I think a lot of, we lose a lot of guys in the minor leagues that give up not because they're not good enough or because um, they don't have the tools, the physical tools. I think they really don't understand how to get through the failure. Because say in high school, you're playing a few times a week or college, you know, you got the weekend games and a couple of games during the week, like 0 for 4 and then next night you got to post up again. And if you're 0 for 10, you got to post up again and you got to figure out how to help the team win and get through those times. So uh, really not necessarily just trying to, stay, trying to stay positive with the guys. We're really trying to find a positive, find some nuggets of that game that you helped the team or you helped yourself. You try to fill in the box score line, do one of those a night, a hit, a walk, a run scored, a sack, a stolen base, a great play. You do one of those a night over the course of the year. At the end of the year, your numbers will be there. Um, but I think it's just really being there for them not necessarily in a dugout. It's, you know, before and after games at that level. Guys want to talk a lot. Um, you know, maybe taking them to lunch or breakfast, hey, meet me downstairs. That goes a long way. Because even major league players, but younger players, when they first come in, nobody knows what pro ball is going to look like till you get there, right? And you're the best, and you get there, and you're like, whoa, there's like 200 people here who are just as good as me or even better, right? So you're trying to navigate your way. So as a coach, you can pinpoint guys who look, you know, maybe don't trust themselves or, or looking around, uh, not believing in themselves. And you try to hit those guys right away. And, and, and there's a reason why they're there because they are good enough and they have been playing long enough. And I think players forget that in the minor leagues when they struggle, they forget the, how, what their journey, you know, playing little league, then playing high school and travel ball or, and town ball and then college, whatever it is to get to where you want. Um, and it's just the game, the players get tougher. Like we said, it's still the same game. So helping them navigate that, get through that season. And I think the number one thing that I really liked at that level is teaching accountability. That they're going to, you know, you try to remind them, like, you're going to have over 20 coaches in your career. Like, you have to be accountable for your own career, your eating habits, your workouts, your strength training, you know, your swings, you know, your pitching, your bullpens, whatever it is, you have to be accountable. The earlier we can make them accountable for their own career, the faster they'll develop because they won't need us. You know what I'm saying? So um, if they're not accountable, it's going to take a while for them to develop if they ever do, right? It's, it's understanding who they are and not placing blame on an organization or, or a coach or anything like that. So you, you want to make them accountable as early as possible when they come into the organization. Do you find that or did you find that with those younger guys, this is what I've seen a little bit too, they, they always want to do more. They always want to hit. They always want to be in the cage, do more and more and more. 
and then I think you know the, when I hear older players talk, they said you know the, the older I got, the less I hit. But yet they that's because they they knew their swing more. You know the older they get, so I, I, I see sometimes of of guys you know quality over quantity, and I totally get that. It's definitely true. But is there an element that those guys, those younger guys, need to swing and swing and 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 fail and and let them fail so that they can figure it out themselves over time? Does that make sense? Sure, sure. Again, there's there's a balance to everything, and that's the that's the answer that everybody wants. That's the answer. But there's some truth to that being balanced. I mean, I'm so impressed when players come into an organization at the lower levels of the first time in and are able to take five swings in the K in, in BP when it's a round of five and walk out and not have to finish on a good one. Mm. I'm super impressed with that because it, it doesn't matter how you finish, right? You finish bad. It's five swings. You got to be able, if you can't deal with failure in BP, you're going to, you're going to struggle in the game. So I got to be able to, to walk out on a bad one. I got to be able to walk out of the cage and flips on a bad one. And cause you could train guys, you could trick guys and you just with your, with your verbiage and be like, you need to you need to finish on a good one here. Come on, way to go! Great session, and then that turns into what? Fifteen extra one. <laughs> one right? more. One more. One more. <laughs> one more. One more. Right? And you trick them into it, and that's a lesson to them. Like the last one is not as important as the first one, or the fifteenth, or the twentieth. They're all important. So don't make your last one is not going to judge your whole session when you just hit fifty out of fifty-one balls on the nose, and the last one that should tell you how much pressure you put on yourself trying to do good. Uh, I think. I think there's a time where guys have to to swing a lot when they're learning uh, adjustments that they're making or maybe something with their stance or their hands or their spacing in their feet. Uh, they need to swing a lot. But then you also sometimes when guys swing too much, they I hate to say become physically tired because they're pretty trained, but you become mentally gassed, right, with the negativity of why isn't it working? I need to do more right? Because we're all trained. You need to do more. You need to work as hard as you can. You got to work until you get it right. And I think we work ourselves, we self-sabotage ourselves when that happens. And, you know, I was, I think we've all been that way. And I even been that way as a coach start starting out, you're trying to help guys get to the next level. One of the things I learned from, from Joe Madden uh, last year or two years ago, being with him was like really how, how to control your practice and making sure that it's, it's, so much uh, the quality of your practice than the quantity of the numbers. Cause I'll always even talk to our guys in the big leagues and like, you know, cause we have day games at Wrigley and guys get frustrated. They want to hit after the game. And I'm like, you can hit after the game, but I won't be there. <laughs> you know, like I will not be there. I've never seen it work. If you want to go and talk after the game and come into the office or you want to wait till some people leave and we, we want to talk and discuss, we'll do that. But I've never seen a guy go to the cage hit and fix or whatever he needs is working for right because it's it's emotional it's reactionary you know if they want to go in there and smash out the machine i get it right you want to let out some frustration and anger go ahead but i won't be there that doesn't mean i don't support you that means i do support you right and i'll be ready the next morning you want to text me in the middle of the night or you want to meet you at the field at 10 in the morning for a seven o'clock game i'll be there because then we can hash out some things clear-minded and not just be reactionary after the game but there's definitely some times where you, you need to swing but I think you learn from the from from the best hitters you ask them what they do and how they swung and how many times I swung and I remember with the Rangers uh, my first major league job and I'm looking in the in the on my first uh, meeting with the players in spring training and I'm looking in the face of Adrian Beltre, Prince Fielder, Josh Hamilton, 
you know, Elvis Andrews, Mitch Moran, Robinson Trinos, Ian Desmond. And I'm looking at Shinzu Chu, Rognito Dor, who was like 21 at the time. And I'm like, what are they, what am I going to say to these guys? They just come off a division championship on the last game of the year. Right. And I'm coming in. Um, so I just asked questions and I can remember talking with Adrian and Prince about when did you feel comfortable walking out of the cage in the big leagues? And Adrian was like, uh, he said probably three or four years because I, I knew my swing at a young age. I knew when I felt right and what I needed to go in the game, but the veteran guys would say, Hey, you need more swing. Mm. He says, so it took a while. Prince was like four or five. He's like, I would take some swings and walk out and, 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 and players would be like, you need to get back in there and swing more rookie. But meanwhile, they, they knew what they were trying to do. And that's why they're, so much better than everybody else because they knew themselves or at an early age. And I think that's why guys get to the big leagues earlier. And I was fortunate enough to be Nomar Mazar that year, who was 20. You talk about a guy who knows himself and understands the game and is very confident. That's why they get there at 20. They understand those parts of the game and can handle the failure instead of the ups and downs. So it's not that they're so much more better or their tools are more talented or they're so much talented or gifted. Um, it's that they can handle those things better. So there's times and places <laughs> For everything, there's times where you you see a guy's face and you know, oh, no, don't go there, brother. And you're just trying to give him a couple more flips or a couple more off the machine and get him the heck out of there, you know, and let him go work on his defense. So at least he's feeling good about his cage session. Because the thing about baseball from any other sport is you practice and play every single day. There's no other sport like that. For some reason, people try to compare football, basketball, rugby, whatever it may be, hockey, to baseball. And there's no beast like that. So the, the mental taxing it takes on you when you're practicing every day, you could take, you could feel good one day, get four hits, five hits. The next day you start throwing to a guy and all of a sudden he like clips a couple of balls and he steps out and you're like, uh-oh. He's already questioning himself just because, mm -hmm. you know, you, you, it's such a game of failure. So it's recognizing that when the player's emotions in the batter's box and the cage, and sometimes you just got to sit, you know, take a seat down, man. Let's talk it out. What's, what's the issue? And then there's usually some underlying issue on the major league side, like I just been told I was platooning. I'm thinking about maybe getting sent down. My my playing time is cut. And for those types of guys, when they go through these issues, it's our job as coaches to not let that affect their practice because that's the only thing that that we can control as a coach is provide the environment for them to practice um, to make sure that they're at least in their practice um, they're not being judged. Right, and they can practice for freedom. Those are huge goals of mine: is to create the atmosphere that where they're not being judged, looking over their shoulder, like who's on the cage? Is it the farm director? Is it the manager? Those things affect players. Uh, so you create this atmosphere where um, they have freedom to do do what they want and say what they want to say, but also to not be judged by the coach or whoever else is watching them, even their teammates. So you create that atmosphere for each other. So I guess that would, uh, my next follow-up would be, is there, I, I guess there's tons of times where you're just, it's one-on-one. -on -one. Like, are you taking a player out early on the field where it's, so it can sure. just be you two and nobody else around? Absolutely. Uh, there's multiple times, at least once or twice a week, where, oh, they're text me. I, you know, you try to ask for at least a 24-hour in advance or the night before to give the grounds crew time to set up mm -hmm. because the grounds crew works their butt off all day yeah, to yeah. get in the field prepared. And then you drop a bomb on them like, hey, we need to be out there in five minutes. You know, one of our players wants to hit off the tee. And it's like, it just kind of disrupts everything. And it's, you want to keep the peace with the grounds crew. And at Wrigley, our grounds crew was awesome. Even I was in Texas, they were awesome. Um, so I asked the players at night, you know, shoot me a text if you want to, you want to do your routine on the field. So they, they want to see ball flight. 
but they also want to step out of the cage and be away and maybe just talk and hash out some issues. Um, they put on, put on some music and then they go out. And then what happens is some other guys will be like, Hey, can I hit with you? Uh, Jay Hayes hitting out there, you know, sometimes Javi and Jay Hay like to hit together. It depends on who it is. Some guys will just say, no, you know, I want to be alone and nobody gets offended because they understand the work and what it takes to be a major league player, especially successful. So I love going out on the field one-on-one or one-on-two, even three guys at a time, uh, whether it's machine or we're just doing short pitch or they just do their T routine. Um, It also gives some times for some guys, maybe get some extra shagging as well in the defense. But it's always good. And, and we have so many staff members where we're covered to where I could leave the cage and there's other coaches in there helping the players with their routines or going over the, the scouting report on the pitcher for that night. So being able to to be staffed well with guys you trust that you could go out on the field and do the one-on-one. But a lot of that, um, a lot of that is player-driven, right? Uh, if, you always want players to drive a lot of the work that you do. And in the back of your mind, you're saying, okay, I'm going to ask this guy probably in a day or two, like, hey, let's go outside, let's do some stuff. And then you kind of lead him a little bit, and he's like, hey, tomorrow, let's let's go out there. And it's not just if a guy's doing bad or if he's doing good. It's just they just kind of want a, a different view or a different a, a different aspect than in, than in the cage. And then sometimes, like, guys like to hit early, even BP. They don't like to hit with the groups because they feel rushed uh, during batting practice because you're always on time, especially on the road. So if we're able to get out there a little bit before – and they could take a full batting practice, then they won't hit during the during regular BP. They'll do their defense and then go inside and get ready for the game. Have you noticed, uh, maybe this is more towards the, the mental side a little bit, have you noticed more players maybe more recently as all the analytics and technology and everything have come out of, you know, Wanda, you know, hit certain launch angles and, and hit home runs and all that. Have you noticed that now there's, there's more players who don't want to hit on the field because they don't want to get too big and would rather just stay in the cage and just, you know, less is more. So they don't try to do too much. For sure. For sure. And it's, it's kind of, it's kind of going that way. I think there would have been more of that 20 years ago if the stadiums were equipped with the batting cages. Okay. So every facility now in the big leagues and in minor league, I would assume the minor leagues, you know, has a home hitting cage and, you know, we have two on Wrigley. And then, you know, on the road, every major league team now has to have a road cage, which every team does. So uh, you could get you could get all your swings. You could do your machine. If you have data set up, whether it's, you know, any type of Rapsodo, hit tracks like we were talking, or uh, Diamond Kinetics, whatever it is, you could bring with you, set up in cages wherever you want to get. If you if you need the numbers uh, to, to show where you're hitting it or you don't, for the most part, really guys uh, understand the feel of the bat, the fly of the ball in the cage. They don't need a whole lot of a whole lot of data coming up because they've had over, you know, seventeen thousand at bats and millions of swings in the cage already. But for sure, I think guys get caught up in. I, I think batting practice could turn into home run derby, and you know when it's coming in at whatever mile per hour speed it is is throwing, and and guys are you know especially if the wind's blowing out, and guys are trying to jack. That, that that's never going to change. That's guys human nature. Guys want to see how far they can hit the ball, especially, you know, the monsters in the big leagues and everybody gets gets uh, gets blown away with it. And then, you know, you're going, oh, my gosh, and you're excited. And then, the, you know, next thing you know, they're pulling off everything in the game because the guy's throwing a 2-0 changeup or sinkers down the way and you're taking your, your BP feel. So, uh, for the most part, I think guys always want to finish up with some hard line drives. Whether, I mean, these guys are so big, they hit line drives over the fence through the middle of the field. So I think there's times to get your swing off. I think there's also times where you got to go in the cage and, and really just, just be, 
through the back of the net, you know, right back up the middle. It could be low line drives. It doesn't mean that you're going to hit ground balls in the game. It's just a feel in your swing you're trying to get to being compact and then letting it eat out in front. So, yeah, there's guys, I mean, even with our guys, you know, it's not something that they have to do every day, BP on the field, but to make sure that they're getting their work on in the cage or if they're getting it done early. But uh, sometimes guys try to do too much when they're around other players as well. I've seen that happen. You know, guys just can't take BP. They'll put a lot of pressure on, on themselves. They're trying to show themselves in front of another player or, or somebody's trying to keep up with Javi Byers or Kyle Schwaber in home run derby, and that doesn't work out well for the other guy. So for sure, I think there's there's so many ways now guys can get their work in with all the cages and the tools that they have in the cage that they didn't have. And I think that's how the hitting on the road early started um, for players who wanted to get their work in, uh, which still goes on today at two o'clock. You could hit on the road early. You have the field from two to three. Um, that was before all the all cages were built. So a team would call early and say, hey, can we have the field from two to three? Some guys want to get some extra swings in. But now every road team has a cage, so you don't, you don't really have to do that unless you want to get outside and check out the new stadium and see the background for all that. Yeah, I mean, just, just hearing you talk, I, what goes through my mind is just, A, just how many games, you know, Major League season is and, like, how just how many swings a player takes and how it's just every single day. And I remember this is, I mean, going to another sport. And I know you, you said earlier that, you know, this is only baseball is so unique and that you play every day. Remember Michael Jordan talking about wanting butterflies before a game and that if he didn't really have butterflies, like he, some, he, he needed to have those. Like he wanted to have, yeah. be a little bit nervous. But as a baseball player, since you are playing every single day, I mean, have you, do you help guys get butterflies? No, they still have it. They still have them eat every day. They still have them. Yep. Yeah. I just I wasn't sure. You, okay. I love when coaches come in, even in spring training, um, to come into cages, like minor league coaches, to come into cages and just not, not necessarily watch the drills each guy is doing, but watch their intentfulness behind each swing they take and why they're doing it and how focused and deliberate every swing is. I mean, it's so impressive. Um, and then it's way more intense, you know, 10, 15 minutes, 25 minutes before the games if guys are doing machine. And it's not like they're getting ramped up and, and banging their chest. Um, they're just getting ready to compete. But the silence is way more before a game in their cage work, whether it's 10, 15 swings, than it is, you know, three hours before the game. So you don't have to help, excuse me, you don't have to help those guys. I think I think the butterflies is just an anticipation. It's just a focus. Like you've trained all day and all week to get to this moment and you're just waiting for that moment to start. You know, I don't think it's a nervousness. I think it's just, just anticipation. You know, you, you have the scouting sheet and you're watching the pitcher on one TV of his last start or whatever it may be and you're doing your work and you're looking at him. You're creating that, you know, because cause you you want to perform well. And you want to make sure that you're ready. So uh, last thing you, you want before, before a guy walks out there at a 120 game is to take a million swings before he walks out there. Because yeah. that means just putting a lot of pressure on him. So if you want him to get in and get out and be ready for the game. I got a, I got a question for you. This is a little bit, maybe if I, it's not going to throw you for a loop, but this is, what if a player doesn't like you? Um. I don't know. I, I wouldn't say I haven't gotten along with, with every player. So for the most part, I've gotten along with every player. You definitely have arguments, but that comes from a place of love. You yeah. know what I mean? Where 
you know, people argue because they feel like they're not being heard or you're trying to get your point across, whether it's, you know, whether it's family or whether it's baseball coaching or it's teammates. Um, it comes from a place of love. So again, if you, you put that stuff out there early about uh, one of the things that I, I love to talk about coaching is if you're in this room and where is a group, nobody in here should ever be offended by what I say. And I will never be offended by what you say. Mm-hmm. So if you don't think I'm pulling my weight at player, you call me out. And then I'll go home and think about it and be like, you know what? He's right. I, I didn't have it prepared as well as I thought or something like that. Or, you know what? Maybe I didn't, I, I didn't have the balls that they wanted or the, the, the things that they needed. And I won't get offended by it because you know you're in it for the bigger reason. One is to, to help them get better. and Two is to win a World Series. So they'll never get offended when you call them out. They may get a little bit uh, pissed off at you right away. But maybe an hour later, they, you know, they'll come back and we'll talk and just be like, you know, sorry, my emotions got in the way. Like, let's get after it. And it's gone. It's gone. So I, I never understood when coaches would say, you know, he's not coachable. I really never understood that. I would think if, whenever I heard that, that helped, that would make me gravitate toward that player and figure out why somebody would say that, right? I mean, you got to get, and, and then this kid usually has a backstory tough upbringing, wherever he's from. And you have to figure those things out so he knows that he can trust you because he's probably been hurt by a male or somebody throughout his life. So maybe it's our job to help those guys, especially in the minor leagues, to to help them with guidance, to help them develop. Or instead of attacking their swing or their arm angle, let's find out why this guy supposedly called uh, a bad apple or he's uncoachable. I have always told players as a coordinator, you're too coachable. You're way too coachable, right? You know, you, you, you... these guys are like, yeah, we're ready to go. And they're just like, you know, a little puppy dog. And I got, and then I would just make up something that's totally untrue <laughs> to just to see if they would agree with me. And they're like, yeah, yeah, it's great. It's great. And I'm like, no, I just lied to you. Like you have to, you have to create your own thoughts so that I could learn from you as well. So, you know, as far as somebody not liking me, you can't control what, what how somebody else thinks about you, whether it's another coach or manager from another team, whether it's your own coaching staff or whether it's the players the only thing you can control is, is showing up and being ready to to help the players get ready to win a ball game well one of the one of the things that i've heard you say before which i really like is you know you've talked a lot about um on some other podcasts i've listened to is just the the emotional aspect of it and how when you're watching a swing or a hitter hitter swing or mechanics you know, the first thing you don't necessarily go to is, you know, well, they need to change their setup or whatnot. It's okay. Like what's going on. You just reiterated to it a little bit in that when you were previously talking, but is there anything going on off the field? Like, is there anything going on like with a girlfriend with, you know, back home or whatnot, because all those types of what happens off the field can dictate their movement in the box. And oh, yeah. which I think, yeah. I mean, I think it's huge just hearing you say that, and I think that should be, you know, I've, that's, it resonated with me more. It's like, okay, the first thing that I don't need to go to is run up to the player and tell him, you know, he needs to do this different. It's, it could be deeper than that. Yeah, for sure. You, you, your approach is how you live your life off the field. Your approach at the plate, you know, whether you're too aggressive or you're too passive or you're caught in between. Um, it's usually how you live your life off the field. And I learned that from not only my, my personal experience, but also when I started roving. Because now you're dealing with, you know, how many, 15 players times eight teams. I mean, you're dealing with over 100 players. And you're flying from city to city trying to figure out, you know, why this guy is swinging. Why is he opening up? Why is he taking too many strikes? Why is he chasing too many pitches? And what I learned from interviewing, I try to say like I'm a professional interviewer when I was roving or even now, like 
what's the root? And it's usually something, especially today's kids in the minor leagues, like with social, like with social media, like everybody could reach you whenever they want. And as a minor league player, when you're doing good or bad, you don't want to, you don't want to talk about when you're doing bad to a bunch of people. And you necessarily don't want to talk about when you're doing good because you're just so focused, you know, in your routine and you don't want to explain, yeah, I'm doing good because of this. And then you start thinking, am I doing good because of this? <laughs> so, so, but now like your, your high school coach can get with you, your hitting instructor can get with you, your, your college coach, your high school, all these people get in touch with you nowadays um, and watch the minor league games on TV. So those guys have a tough time really pushing out the noise um, from everybody. So, yeah, I, I would think it's an issue. What's going on in their life? What are they doing? What kind of emotions are they feeling? They're upset with the manager. They're upset with the coaching staff. Are they upset with another player? Then I'll say, you know, are you swinging at strikes? No, you're not swinging at strikes. Okay, so let's figure out how to get better pitches to hit. Maybe use the middle of the field. Let's go oppo for a couple of games, get head back out later on. Let's take the fastball to right center. If he's right-handed for a couple of games. Um, you know, sometimes you gotta, you got you to gotta lose a couple of games uh, for yourself to get your feel back for the rest of the season, right? You got to take a couple overs, but as long as my process is right, um, sometimes I got to take the over four just to feel, feel a contact point or feel what I'm trying to do is right. And then if those don't come, it's like, okay, I'm missing pitches in the zone. Why am I missing pitches? When am I getting started? What's, how's my timing? All this, because everybody has different moves. The pitches has different moves and really, it could be my time. It could be off. I'm usually getting started late. Or is there something off in my swing? And that's when we start to attack the swing, when I'm missing balls in the zone consistently that I shouldn't be hitting. Then we'll get to the kinetracks or video, whatever it may be, whatever we're using. And then not necessarily dissect it, but see some issues from when they were feeling good and try to compare them. But you also think it's, the comparisons are hard because you don't know what emotional state they were in when they were doing good yeah. as when they were doing bad. So that's the challenging part of, of comparing videos and swings at certain times, especially if you're comparing it from like two years ago right? or a year ago. You're like, we're like, yeah, look at your swing here. And they're like, I don't even remember what I was thinking back then. So it's always good to journal some stuff down too. So maybe the players can go back to that on their own. Have you recommended two players like to sacrifice at bats or games sure. to help get them back on track? Sure. All the time. And even in the minor leagues too, because I'm sure minor leagues way more. Okay, way more. Way more, more in the minor leagues. Way more minor leagues because the big leagues you got to win. Right. Right, and you got to produce. You don't produce. You, you you don't make you don't make enough money, and then you then you get sent out. In the minor leagues, you you could talk to the player and be like, Hey, look, man, we got this week right here. You're not going anywhere. You're not being sent down. I got the okay from the farm director. These are the things that we want to work on. Um, you know, let's let's move the ball around the field a little bit. Don't be afraid to get beat. Don't be afraid to take a strike here or vice versa. Hey, we need you to, you know, oh, oh, we need you to be aggressive in this next week and see what happens. Even if they're making out, you keep talking them through it. But for sure, I, you know, I can remember Ian Desmond, Elvis Andrews. I mean, a lot of guys my first year with the Rangers would come up to me and be like, hey, post, I'm 0 for 4 today. I'm hitting four grounders to the right side. Mm. I, I'm out in front. I'm, I can't stop. So I'm just going to get jammed or I'm just going to hit a bunch of foul balls over the dugout today. I'm, I'm going to be late on purpose. And then what happens is they take the hit out of it of not feeling good, and they actually focus on something that they can control um, for those couple of things. And they end up getting a double to right center or a guy hangs a breaking ball and they punch it out of the yard. Meanwhile, they were trying to hit a, a fastball bullet the other way. You know, so and it's just – it could be the opposite. It could be like I'm getting beat, I'm getting beat. Hey, today I'm just going to try and yank everything. I'm going to get on top of the plate. I, I lost the field getting the head out. I may pull all these balls foul. So, but I'm going to sacrifice this day 
to, to bring it back or to get it out in front. So you have to do those things every once in a while. At least the best players that I talk to do that. Well, I also liked how you you guys did BP this past summer in August. I know with the cutouts. I think there was I saw like yeah. a Michael Jordan, Bill Murray, Eddie sure. Vedder um, cutouts, and like just it's that more external. A, they're having fun, right, and breaking it sure. up a little bit. But B, it's you know you're fo- focused on something external to try to get the job done. I thought that was brilliant. I really did. Yeah, that was that was. I can't even take hardly any no credit for that. that was bench coach Andy Green. That was something that he. He liked to do, and he thought it was the perfect time. We were actually about to do it in spring training. Um, but during the COVID, and St. Louis had the outbreak, and then we had three days where, you know, we're like, okay, let's let's do this and set it up. But it's it's always good to to mix up BP and have some fun. Because even batting practice could be stressful for guys when they're not going good. Um, they feel like they're being judged at batting practice. They feel like the lineup card's being made by how they hit it, the manager's watching. All those things are real that people don't people don't believe. Um, but I always try to tell people like how much you love something can't be judged, but it's real or how much pain you feel when you fall down. It's real. Everybody's is a little bit different. So um, those internal factors and those mindset factors of, of changing it up, whether it's maybe just a, a machine day, today we're just going to hit breaking balls and they could always go back in the cage and do their, do their routine. Or today, you know, we're just going to do three rounds of eight, get in, get out and, and get out there. So you just try to mix it up for the for the guys, and you learn all that stuff, you know, from coaching in the minor leagues, especially in instructs, where like you're just testing everything, you're just throwing everything out there in instructs uh, to get ready for the for the organization for next spring training. So it's it's always good to enjoy. And sometimes the players have great ideas. The the players, I mean, it's usually player driven. They have these fantastic ideas, and then you throw it out there, and and it builds just like just like anything else. It builds to to where that is today. I'm sure it's also tough. I mean, especially when you're working with, with guys in the minor leagues and, and big leagues too, when, when you see something or see a possible change, but at the same time, you don't want to make them worse. Oh, for sure. And so, I mean, I, I'm sure that's a slippery yeah. slope of like, ah, do I say I don't, you know what I mean? Or is my best coaching by me actually not saying anything yeah. at all right now? Yeah. I assume that's so, more of an experience. You just got to, that's just experience. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, there's been times where you're you're getting ready to hammer this out with this guy, and it's been like a week of him struggling. You're ready. You have everything set up, your numbers, your video, your kinetracks, whatever it may be. And then the night before, you're you're getting ready to present to this guy. He goes four for five, you know, with two homers. And you're like, yeah. uh-oh. So now you let it ride, and that was the best conversation you never had. Right. You know, because <laughs> yeah. now he's fine. Yeah, he's fine. And even though you're ready, doesn't mean, necessarily mean that that's going to help him anyway, because depending where his state of mind is. Um, but I, th- I think you don't necessarily ask guys how they want to be coached because they're going to give you the answer that you think you want to hear. Mm-hmm. It's something that you have to watch and follow on the daily. And then, you know, their style of, of whether they want cues or affirmations right away all the time. Or um, I always think the best sessions are when you talk to a guy what they want to work on. And then whatever it is, you flip, you throw, whatever it is. And then you're done. You pick up balls and then you talk about it and you hash it out. Oh, that was good. Or maybe this, let's get a couple more. And then you talk about whatever movement patterns or whatever approach you were trying to do that day or wherever you're trying to move the ball around. But it's definitely a slippery slope because the swing is personal. It's yours, right? You've been doing it since you picked up a bat. Um, so if somebody comes at you with – and I think it's more detrimental at the lower levels because – uh, as coaches and players, you know, we're new to it. So we want to help everybody and the player wants to get better so fast. 
but then a lot of times it just sends it backwards, right? And now it makes the player standoffish when it comes to coaching down the road, but it can also make him accountable to say, hey, if this coach is going to come at me, he better make sure he knows what he's, he's talking about. And players will test you. Like, they'll test you. They'll set you up to see if you, you're going to overcoach him too soon or you want to get to know him. Because, like you said, the swing is personal. So the relationship coach thing they want first is definitely a personal thing. And it doesn't mean you're, you're, you're you know, patting them on the back all the time. But they also want you to tell them the truth. And how you tell them the truth and how you spit it to them is important in that relationship, whether they're going good or bad. They just want somebody to, to be able to work with and, and tell them the truth. When um, I think there's think some players it. who just straight up, they just want to get better. They're not, you know, they don't really sure. want you to, you know, the whole relationship, build the trust. Like, can you make me better? Yes. Like, tell me what to do. Sure. There's plenty of guys mean? like that. Yeah. I, yeah, I mean, and I would I'm sure. The majority of players are like that. I, I would say the majority of players are like that. Okay. And if a friendship builds after that, yeah, then it builds, you know what yeah. I mean? Like a after the fact, and, and that's happened a lot. And I'm very fortunate to have a lot of those relationships, but you let them know right away. Like my goal isn't to be your friend. My goal is to be here for a coach too. And over a course of 162 games, we're seeing each other every day. And the hitting coach spends more time with the players than any other coach on the staff. You're hitting twice a day, maybe three times a day with batting practice. And the conversations you have on video, uh, the meetings going over the other team, you spend way more because the pitcher coach just has a bullpen. Then he moves on to the next pitcher and may not spend the quality time the next day with that pitcher. So with the hitting, it's the same thing every day. It's, it's really insane. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's, it's like really insane. What, what happens if a player, when a player is traded over to you guys? Because I'm mm -hmm. sure it's more, you know, you probably didn't experience that so much in the minor leagues as you do in the big leagues where, mm -hmm. you know, the trade deadline's approaching, you get a couple of new hitters. There's no time to really, you know, build that relationship yeah, think, with them. Yeah, I think in the minor leagues, you learn from minor league free agents, six-year guys that have re-signed with a new organization, right? They've been through it. They're, they're fresh, new with a new team. They've been with the whoever the Orioles for six years, and now they they feel they feel new. Like so, um, you ask them because you respect the fact that they've already played six years or whatever level they're at, and you're like, okay, what do you want to do? What do you want to work on? What are the things you worked on this winter? Is there anything you want me to look for? And then you establish that dialogue right away, right? And the guy's usually mature enough to to handle certain things, so we'll try certain things. But he'll also say no, like that doesn't feel right. Let's go a different way. Uh, and that's the same way with trades. My first year with Texas. We traded at the deadline. I got uh, we got Carlos Beltran, Jonathan Lucroy, and I was like, "Oh, how do I do this with two months left in the season?" Like, you know, you have a Hall of Fame player and a multiple All Star catcher who you know broke doubles record, and they come in. You just do it like that. Hey, you know, what are the things you do? I watched you from afar. Or, uh, you know, I love watching you play. Like, anything you want, we we get for you. Whatever you want. You want machine one day. You want bring a ball one day. And you, and then you have them for two months and then, and then you go on. And, and I've been fortunate enough to have guys at the, at the trade deadline uh, with both teams to see how both we got Nick Castellanos last year, like coming from Detroit, as soon as we got him, like you didn't even say anything. He went nuts. Yeah. You know, he was happy to be, I mean, he went crazy with the Cubs and it wasn't something that we worked on something that he did his whole career. He was just a little bit more enthused about trying to get to the playoffs and then also be first time being a free agent, you know? So this guy, this guy went, when balls to the wall every play, man, and he was a joy to be around. So you just, you learn, you ask them, what do you need? What do you want? What can I provide for you? 
Um, usually the, all of them will always say like, if you see something, let me know. If you see something, let me know. And it just starts the dialogue. It's just, I think it all depends how you present it. I think all information is good. And it, uh, it, how it's presented and how it comes out from the person talking it is important. But more importantly, how it's interpreted by the other other person, right? So if you say stay inside the ball and I say stay inside the ball, we understand, but we how we visually see it could be different. Yeah. And that's the that's the trouble with baseball sometimes that we run into. There's over one million sayings for hitting, stay in your legs, use your hands, get on top, get underneath, all, all these types of things, but it's all interpreted or presented different. So you have to make sure that you and the player or you and the coaching staff are not necessarily on the same page because you could be on the same page and have different ink, right? Or one could be script, one could be in print, but at least you're explaining what you mean. So you go, okay, so this is what you mean by get on top. It doesn't mean chop down on the ball. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. It just means be a little bit more direct and then flatten out and get underneath at the end. So um, creating that, that clarity between coaches and players is huge. Well, it also amazes me how, how simple major league hitters keep, keep everything right. Where they, they, you know, we, we talk in this language see online social media and everything of, uh, of all these words that I mean, half the time I don't even know what they mean. And then, but like, get what when you really have a conversation with a big league hitter, it's they it, they keep it so simple. I mean, they they really don't. And they, in a sense, I can see why you got ninety eight coming at you. Sometimes with movement, yeah. you can't be up there thinking about much. So I think just that's one of the things yeah. that I like that I've seen is like, I think that was Joe Madden was like, do simple better, whatever his you know phrase yeah. was. But yeah. yeah. I, I mean, I, I'm a, I, uh, the more I'm around and the more I've been around big league hitters, the more I realize just how simple it needs to be. Yeah, I think, you know, we talked about it. I, I, everybody's some, somewhat of a genius at something they are in their life or something they love to do. And I think when you meet the best of the best at their profession, it's really hard to understand how simplified they've made it, whether you're, you know, whether you're talking to, you know, I can only speak of the people that I've talked to whether it's Ryan Sandberg, Billy Williams. I try to talk to guys in different decades, even guys like pitching guys like Rick Sutcliffe, you know, or Manny Ramirez, or, or you know, Uke was with us the last few years helping out the players and giving his perspective um, for the type of hit, hitter he was and the teams he played for and winning. Um, but it's not – I think when you speak to these types of players and they say it, you go, no, nah, nah, it's got to be more than that because the coaches usually weren't as good and always trying to figure out what to do. So they always think it's more, more, more when it was actually less, less, less. And, you know, when you're playing through the minor leagues and you start to see this separation or, or it's from players and coaches, you start to see that from coaches staff, you start to see the separation in the minor leagues. It's, it's their thinking that you're just like, wow, man, that guy is like, you know, it's 15 to nothing. This guy just got a two strike hit the other way. The jam yeah. job was did not give that a bat away. Everybody else is, is can't wait till the game's over to go home and watch TV or whatever. And this guy's still battling and his team's up 15 to nothing. And he's over four and he's trying to get that hit because that's how competitive he is. And he wants to, he wants to master it. So they, they find a way to keep it simple. It doesn't mean it's easy. Um, yeah. Just, just put your hands here. It's real simple. Do that. No, um, yeah. there's a lot of trouble with that, but those thoughts of simplicity, in a world where we seem to want things more complicated or more sexy. Um, but like we were talking yesterday, like if you want to, if you want to get hits in the big leagues, talk to guys who got hits in the big leagues. <laughs> I love that. I mean, yeah. That, that's it. Right. Like, yeah. 
I didn't, I didn't, you know, I played at every level except the big leagues. So I can give our players everything they have, except that I didn't step in the box at Wrigley Field with 40,000 people. So them talking with uh, your rest of your coaching staff, you know, Mike Napoli, David Ross, Andy Green, Will Venable last year. Yeah, I like to use all, all our coaches, you know, who've been through that, especially like in the biggest games. You have to be able to use the rest of your coaching staff for things that maybe you aren't able uh, to to do as a player, um, just so that maybe it helps them relax more, maybe it helps them breathe more, maybe it makes them go, hey, all right, this guy's been through it. Okay, this is how he got through it. And all of it plays and helps. But just being able to to simplify, it doesn't mean you don't look at data. You know what I mean? It doesn't mean um, you don't look at angles or velocity or any of that type stuff. It's just, okay, how do I take any type of information, simplify it? Even even before, you know, I, I would like to say that I was able to coach before the iPhone. You, <laughs> I'm, I'm right in the middle, right? So I saw the transformation once the iPhone hit and social media, I, all this stuff became rapid. It was already happening um, for the most part. And I think I was very lucky when I came in to learn the biomechanics from a, a, a hitting coordinator for the Brewers at that time, a, a man by the name of Ralph Dickinson and taught me that taught us the biomechanics with the Brewers as a player in the, in the mid to late nineties. So I think I was ahead of the game there being understanding how the body works, everything works from the ground up, lower half lead hands, whatever it may be, how to use certain parts of your body, um, which is now mainstream now because everybody has access to certain things, but to be able to have all that stuff, but to be able to how to deliver it to an 18 year old kid from Venezuela or, you know, a kid from Canada or, you know, a kid from Korea or Italy or New York City who, or people who may not have this stuff um, doesn't mean they understand it just because you're delivering it to them and they're shaking their head. You have to really make sure, especially players from Latin America, because sometimes they want to show that they understand the language. So they're going to say yes. Yeah. yeah. You have to constantly keep repeating yourself like in a positive way to make sure that they, they understand that. Um, but I love talking to, you know, I love, like, I really miss this year having Billy Williams down in the cage. He would come down like 6.15, come down, he'd look at the pitcher, and he'd just be like, oh, eliminate slider. His fastball can't command inside. We got this guy. And you're like, yeah. oh, that would be. No, <laughs> <laughs> so he's a Hall of Famer. He's the only guy to hit 40 homers, a left-handed hitter at Wrigley Field, the only one because of that wind, how it blows, and then across. And then you, you start talking to, to good players and, and – or players who really struggle with themselves and are still really good in the major leagues and they're like better than an average player, but still can't get out of their own way and still fight themselves on, on certain things. And it's, it's, it's a, it's a tough game. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's the best way hitting, to put it. Hitting is hard. I remember Derek Johnson, the pitch coach for the Reds, we coordinated together with the Cubs and he would always, our offices were right next to each other. And he would always say, he'd walk in and he'd say, Post, the hardest thing about hitting is hitting. <laughs> it just make and that made sense to me. I, I live and die by DJ. He's 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 the best pitching, he's one of the best coaches in general uh, I've been around. Uh, you, you mentioned before we started recording about when you were coordinating and you know, you would go down to the Dominican Republic and they and they would do the the overload, underload bat training and tight you know, tape pennies to the bat and how this is it's not a new thing now and how you you felt that they'd actually put them ahead of of players swings when they came over to the, to the united states could you elaborate on that a little bit 
Yeah, when, when I first started roving and going to the Dominican and you'd walk into their cage and they would have, you know, pennies and, and taped around the bats to make it heavy and nails in the balls, sand in the basketballs. Um, you nails start to realize. And nails on the balls to make it heavier. So they, they put they just hammer nails into the baseball and make it heavier. Um, different color electrical tape on the balls, and they would yell out colors, you know, to try to help them. Because um, a lot of the, the kids down in, in Dominican just train. They don't play games, right, because there's no little leagues and things like that. So we were talking about that's kind of where they fall behind. But as far as, this, as, far as the, the swing mechanics, they're not really pigeonholed into one – one type of swing, they're trying to hit the ball as hard as they can, as far as they can to get signed, just like the reason why they throw so hard. But, yeah, it's hard for to find some starting pitches because they, they've never pitched before, so they can just come out of the bullpen yeah. and secondary pitch and, and give everything they got for an inning. Um, so getting those players – I noticed that their swings, like the biggest part that I would see of players coming in then um, was like American players – getting too far back on their backside, getting stuck, staying back, striding and reaching early, uh, reaching to your toe, and then drifting to your center, where these Dominican players would just stay against their backside and have everything, you know, with their body centered, pick up their leg and just fire away and go, you know, drive, drive out there with their front side, hit the brakes, fire and go. Now they, they struggle with off speed uh, coming into the States, but the more they see it, the better everybody gets, just like anything else on the confidence driven thing or runners and sinkers and things like that. So uh, for sure that the training down there has, has, has you know, you, you heard about it, but once you go down there and see it and, and you're a part of it, um, I think people who didn't know about underloading or overloading um, are now it's brought to mainstream because of social media and drills and things like that, which, have been going on for a long time, but, you know, and then it's good that people are able to share it because it's probably helped a lot more players uh, in the United States. But again, I think, I think the issue that we're having in the United States is from a winning aspect, right? Players are trained in a cage one-on-one. -on -one. They're not being accountable, you know, playing in the schoolyard or backyard, choosing teams, having to lose without a coach, right? They're, they're, they're playing with coaches constantly all, all the time. And, you know, we're losing the high school, the high school player, the travel ball, right? The travel ball is going to get you seen. It's going to get you signed. It's going to get you in the college, right? But then once you get in the pro ball, now you got to train a guy toward winning who's never been a part of winning or who's never was important, yeah. right? But once you get to the big leagues, that's all it's about. So if you don't have any training through the minor leagues or your amateur side and you get to the big leagues and you're not about winning, the team's not going to want you very much. Mm. So those are the kind of things that we're losing out on. So, yeah, we're gaining um, – we're gaining exposure for players, which, which they need, right, especially players from the north, you know, and, you, and you're gaining exposure through social media. Um, you could sell yourself to help you get scholarships and get seen at that, but, but we're losing the winning player aspect. We've created the most selfish hitter in the history of baseball right now. <laughs> That's a good point. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Um, yeah. Well, Anthony, I appreciate you coming on in, man. This is a lot of fun, and uh, I know you're, you're really busy and got a lot to do, and I you know, just really appreciate it, man. Yeah, man, it's great. Great talking with you. I, I love listening to the podcast, so keep them coming, my man. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to my episode with Anthony Iaposi. If you haven't already, please make sure to head on over to iTunes and subscribe, rate, and leave a review. Please make sure to also stay safe, and I'll see everyone next week.